on this special episode of Movie Geeks United to commemorate the 30th anniversary of the re- the release of Child's Play. We welcome to the show Don Mancini. Mr. Mancini is the architect behind the Child's Play films, having penned the original story that the film was based upon. And he also was the co-screenwriter of the original Child's Play. Since then, Mr. Mancini has had a hand in all of the subsequent Child's Play sequels to varying degrees and has directed two of them. He also Three of them. Three of them? Okay. Yep. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks for the correction. All right. Well, but who's counting? Hey. Yeah, that's right. Well, we want to get that right, so I'm glad you corrected <laughs> So uh, he also contributed scripts for the horror television series Tales from the Crypt, Channel Zero, and Hannibal. So it's a pleasure to welcome you to our show, Mr. Don Mancini. And we're going to – I always like to start with our guests and find out exactly how they started, uh, how they went from – you know, being a movie geek or whatever it was, to actually being a part of the business. Absolutely. Uh, well, thank you for having me on, first of all. It's a pleasure. And uh, let's see, how did I start? Well, I was a, I was very interested in movies from a very early age. Um, I think the first movie that really made me become interested in pursuing a career as a writer and director was... The Poseidon Adventure, of all things, when I was eight or nine years old, and I think I was just really taken with the the special effects and the spectacle, and I think because the film was so special effects heavy that uh, it made me aware of and consequently interested in the presence behind the camera and the and the the subterfuge and stratagems that filmmakers use to uh, make us believe in the worlds that they're creating, whether it's a giant ocean liner turned upside down or a tall skyscraper on fire. I was, I was very into the disaster movies as a small kid. Um, and at the same time, I was interested in horror. I was interested in horror as a very young child. I remember literally learning the word shadow from watching the TV show Dark Shadows as a child in the 60s. So I must have been like three, I'm guessing, <laughs> three or four uh, when I learned that word. Um, and anyway, so then once I got interested in movies, my interest in horror applied to film as well, and I was really into the films of Brian De Palma, those early films like Carrie and The Fury and Dress to Kill, and I was very interested in the Omen movies as well, I think, for two reasons. One, because I was raised Catholic, and because <laughs> those movies have such a reliance on you know Catholic dogma, or certainly Christian dogma with a slight Catholic bias, I would argue, I guess, <laughs> uh, is what those movies are selling anyway. Um, oh, anyway, yeah. at the age of 13, when the first Omen came out in 76, was the first R-rated movie I ever saw. My dad took me to it. I took it quite seriously, I think. I just like, oh my gosh, the devil could actually be walking amongst us. Could be, you know, one of my, a kid my one of my sisters is babysitting or something. <laughs> I mean, but even when I outgrew all of that um, nonsense, I still appreciate the the craft and the art behind it, and also the metaphor that underlies the the various horror stories that I was interested in as a kid. I think the thing that maybe links movies like The Omen and Carrie and the Fury is, it's probably pretty obvious, is that it's all about kids telekinetically punishing their enemies. (laughs) So I think that maybe at a young age that had a special appeal for me as well. Um, But I also thought those movies were really um, elegant, and that really interested me as well. As a a horror filmmaker, one of my main interests in the genre really is this sort of collision between the traumatic material, the you know, the violence, the suspense, you know, whether emotional violence as well as physical violence, but presented in a beautiful way. 
I think those they sort of represent contrasting colors, if you think about it. And I, mm-hmm. I really like that. I was really always way more into those those horror movies than movies like The Hills Have Eyes um, or Texas Chainsaw, which I didn't really come to until late, a little bit later in my film education and film going. And I certainly like them and appreciate them. But as a filmmaker, it's I, I'm just I'm more more into the the sort of ones where the people live in mansions <laughs> sort of lux lux surroundings there is there's just i actually think this is interesting because i think this is something that these horror movies have in common with the with the disaster genre which is a sort a, a glamour being tread upon by violence if that makes sense um sure you know, in, in Poseidon Adventure and Towering Inferno, the characters are dressed to the nines, and they're in these like at these like swank restaurants at special occasions, and so and everyone's very beautiful, and suddenly you know the blood starts flying. <laughs> There's <just laughs> something something about that. Maybe it's just as primal a, an appeal as you know when we're little kids, we have an interest in building sandcastles and then smashing them to smithereens. There's just something peculiar, peculiarly satisfying about it, I guess. I was the same way. I was a huge fan of The Towering Inferno. Is always I always cite that as the movie that really made me a movie geek. I saw it when I was uh, four years old, actually, and my parents were probably... I have to question them for taking a four-year-old to see <laughs> The Towering Inferno a little bit there. But I'm glad they did because right. it made such a lasting impression on me. Um, to uh, There's a scene, I'm always told that the scene where the scenic elevator breaks, that I became so excited I actually jumped out of my seat and turned around <laughs> three times. My father had to grab me by the arm and just literally put me back into my seat. I was so was genuinely shocking that yes. that scene. I, yeah, I mean, I, I had the same reaction. I was a little older. I when that came out, I guess I was ten or eleven. Eleven. Mm-hmm. And yes, first of all, it's this character that we've come to really have affection for in the story, and weren't so. She's just so violently and instantly disposed of it makes you gasp but then also the details of it you know when she goes fall you know she falls and she sort of hits a ledge and starts spinning <laughs> you oh, remember yeah. that you, you know i think it's like that sort of thing when you're a little kid you go holy shit that's horrifying <laughs> and then you kind of go is that what really would happen and then of course then you start experimenting <laughs> you take your sister's dolls and drop them from the upstairs railing and try to make a strategic little oh why is she not spinning correctly <laughs> i'm just saying imagine your listeners are sitting listening to this horrified it's like who is this jerk <laughs> <laughs> oh they love it as much as we do they, i'm sure they do and i've outgrown it though i've channeled it all into uh useful um <laughs> modes of expression <laughs> that's right yes that's, that's that's what it's all about it's about getting some art out of it for art's right. sake so absolutely yeah i you, you know, it's it's funny with those later Irwin Allen films. They're not really all that good. We're, I'm talking about the Swarm and Beyond the Poseidon yeah. Adventure, and one time yeah. right now, that that the unholy trio of yeah. disaster films that kind of killed the genre. And those three and the Concord. Don't forget the Concord. Oh yeah, how could I forget those? Yes. <laughs> but the three that Irwin Allen specifically in, insisted that he direct when he obviously just didn't have the chops for that sort of thing. Right. And, and you're talking about Poseidon Adventure and Towering Inferno. I think those work so well because he had master craftsmen who knew how to to do that stuff, and he kind of, you know, did the wore the producer's hat. But he, you know, the, his his limitations were kept in check until he decided that he had to do that. And I, I think it the the lackluster critical reception of those films kind of cements what we all. Had worried about uh, you know that people thought might be the case that Irwin is not right. a great director, maybe better producer than director. I yeah. think yes, I think you're probably right, and I say that as someone who it sounds like like yourself speaks as a genuine Irwin Allen fan. I oh, was sure. also as a kid, I loved Lost in Space, 
And, you know, so I even knew who Irwin Allen was by the time, like when I was eight or nine years old and seeing the Poseidon Adventure, I was aware that there was a link between my this beloved series of mine, Lost in Space, and this movie. But, um, yeah, I get, even when I watch, like, behind-the-scenes footage from Towering Inferno and Poseidon where he is purportedly and legally the action director directing <laughs> the action scenes. I mean, basically what you see him do, and maybe this is just all that they felt was like really of interest to people on these kinds of bonus material, but whatever, you just see him like with the bullhorn saying, okay, I'm going to shout one, and then this explosion goes <laughs> off, and two, and then this explosion goes off. And while of obviously that sort of logistical planning and expertise is vital in a movie and on a movie set like that. I mean, you know, for all kinds of reasons to make the movie good, but also to keep everybody safe and all of that. That's not really what film directing is, of course, (laughs) you know, so, but you know, I don't, I don't really know what I'm talking about. I mean, he may have been directing actors and talking about their characters' emotions at certain points when they're plummeting off of, you know, ledges <laughs> from elevators. Yeah. I don't know. But somehow I get the feeling that he just kind of went, one, two, three, fall, scream. <laughs> but, <laughs> I, think... I mean, I'm so glad he did because we have those movies. But, you know, the, the, what you call the unholy trinity, the three that sort of were, were the end, the, his last three feature films that yes. he directed, I think another thing is is just that, from fundamentally the material in all three was not good. I mean, I I mean, I even remember as a kid when the swarm was announced thinking, well, that doesn't sound that good. I mean, really in a way Mm -hmm. you think about it, it's, it's less disaster movie and kind of more B horror movie. Certainly the way (laughs) it's presented when it has those cheesy shots of the, the people who have been stung but are still alive and they hallucinate the giant bee that is oh, yeah. like just superimposed <laughs> over the shot. <laughs> it's so insanely goofy. You just like wonder what was going on <laughs> that, that anyone <laughs> thought that this was going to play along with, you know, caring about the, the romantic entanglements of, you know, Olivia de Havilland and Fred McMurray. <laughs> um, and, and I forget who the third one was, which is terrible because I'm oh, sure. Oh, I think it was Ben Johnson. If ben Johnson, yes, of course. <laughs> yes. And isn't it all resolved on the train, right? And it crashes. I, yeah, and it goes flying <laughs> off the side of the mountain, I think, or something, something like I mean, that. Both, both Poseidon Adventure and Towering Inferno have the the stories have very strong metaphoric underpinnings and the Poseidon adventure is about faith and it's about um you know it it's about rebirth in a way it's just like a ma- you know the characters are all explicitly talking about god in the mm-hmm. run up to what's happening they're they're talking about god what does god expect of us uh, you know, Gene Hackman espouses this, you know, sort of activist <laughs> uh, faith, and and then, as if to oblige God, on New Year's Eve, the you know traditionally the time of n- new resolutions about one's life, he turns the world upside down, which is just such a perfect metaphor for anything that goes right. wrong in life, right? It's just like so: turn the world upside down. What do you do? You know, you have, you know, do you, do you sit and wait to be saved or do you try to save yourself? And I think, and that's one of the reasons that that story works so well is just that it has metaphoric resonance, which I think even when we were kids, if we didn't understand it consciously, we certainly get it unconsciously because that's how good stories work on us. And Towering Inferno was about hubris. And, of course, skyscrapers are wonderful symbols of hubris about mankind trying to phoenix-like touch the sun and, and you know, get slapped down for, for presuming to be God, you know? 
Um, in addition to, like, we, you know, as the movie repeatedly tells us over and over, we've got to build these buildings safer, and you can't fight fires over the seventh floor and all of that stuff, which is, you know, interesting as far as it goes. But, um, <laughs> you know, what we really take away with us is, um, you know, ugh, mankind needs to needs to be humble, I guess. That's certainly a humbling, humbling story for all those poor characters. Oh yeah, I, I know. Totally. And let's not forget the glamour that gets dirtied up, which is so much fun. I mean, I, my favorite images in Towering Inferno are just shots of Faye Dunaway with a smudge of, you know, soot on her face or whatever. <laughs> you know, it's this this perfect face, so glamorously made up, but just in trauma, you know, and I just think that that is a huge appeal of those movies. And again, segueing back to our, our, you know, broader conversation about horror, uh, there is a link to that to, you know, movies like Italian Giallo, Dario Argento and Mario Bava, Fulci, those guys, they made these movies, which sometimes were even narratively incoherent. I would argue that even Suspiria is, you know, it's valued, by me anyway, less for its story than for its style and atmosphere and stuff like that. And, oh, and again, e- extreme stylized beauty with blood splattered over it artfully. Yes. <laughs> you know? That's a great summation. Perfect. Perfect. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I now you didn't grow up in Southern California, I don't think, or am I, I didn't. wrong? No, okay. I grew up in Virginia. Oh, in okay. So Virginia. I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina. That's where I'm based out of. So I'm I'm pretty. I have relatives up up, up in that area, so I'm very familiar with it. Yeah. So, well, I'm just curious about the trajectory of how you got from Virginia and got oh, right. the child's <laughs> that play was the story. the question, was it? How did I no, start? No, no. Uh, um, well, as I said, I, so I became very interested in movies, yeah. and I knew that's what I wanted to do. So I, when, it was, when I graduated high school, time to go to college, mm-hmm. I um, went to Columbia University in New York as mm-hmm. an English major, and one of the reasons I chose that school was because it also fairly famously, even at that time, had a really good film school. Mm-hmm. And I I took some courses there, but the problem was, as an undergrad there, you couldn't major in film. It was only really just your it was a grad school thing, and so your access to the film program was somewhat limited as an undergraduate. So I was an English major, taking film classes when I could. And after a while, I just got a little, a uh, little antsy because I just, I felt like I, I know I want to do this. I should take more active steps. I should be in Southern California. So what I ended up doing was I took a year off, um, and I worked on a soap opera in New York City for a year, and that was actually my first job in show business, and I was started out literally as the lowest man on the totem pole working uh, utility, is what it says on the call sheet. And my job, my primary job, was really keeping the, the three cameras video cable from getting all tied together when we would move from set to set to set. Because the way wow. it worked. With a soap opera, we, you're, you know, you're in one studio and you have a collection of, say, five different sets mm-hmm. spread out around the studio, and you move th- throughout the day shooting the show from set to set to set. So you're kind of moving in a circle. So if you can imagine that, and you've got three video cameras, all of them trailing cable, and someone has to make sure those cables don't get hopelessly snared. And that was my job. <laughs> and I loved it, you know, and I was just like thrilled to be a part of a, of a crew and seeing, you know, being, being a part of a professional crew. And I, and there, while the, for the hour, for the hour, for the year I was on that show, a lot of amazing actors came and went on that show and, John Glover, Olympia Dukakis, Cheryl Lee Ralph, Michelle Phillips. I mean, really amazing people. And um, one of whom was this actor named Peter Haskell. 
and he was based in L.A. He was from L.A., but mm-hmm. I was living in New York at the time. But because he was from L.A., he obviously knew a lot about it. So I would talk to him about it and talk to, to him about my plans of, or, or at that point it was just more of like a, a half-baked idea that I would was thinking maybe I'm going to transfer to UCLA rather than go back to Columbia. And he was very encouraging and um, was, uh, I think that helped me steer me in that direction. And then a few years later, he ended up being in Child's Play 2 and Child's Play 3. He came in and read for the director, John Lafia, on Child's Play 2. And John was uh, very nice and allowed me to sort of like be in on all of the process and sort of learn and watch. And so Peter Haskell came in the room and I said, hey, remember me? And he I think he was like, not really, no. (laughs) (laughs) But we ended up casting him, not because I said we have to cast that guy because he was nice to me, but he was a great actor. But it was just so much fun to then work with him in a different capacity and something I'd written. Um, Anyway, so I transferred to UCLA, and while I was there, I wrote uh, the first draft of what became Child's Play. And that's that's how it all began. Uh, now, but now you mentioned Peter Haskell. I have to say this: I remember seeing him in a TV movie that kind of you know, there were some creepy moments in it called "The Eyes of Charles Sand" back in the early '70s. So when you said Peter Haskell, that that brought up images of that uh, that film, which was I think written by the people who wrote what, "Whatever Happened to Baby Jane." I think they had. A oh, really? In that film. I'm not yeah. familiar with that one, but I was just talking the other uh, the other day with a friend about all of that great era from the early 70s where there were all these like great horror TV movies, you know? Oh, yeah. Which I think was important to a generation of kids, you know, that this stuff was being beamed right into our living rooms where our parents had a, would have a harder time, you know, keeping our eyes shielded from it. Yeah, yeah, that that is very true, and and I I was uh, I was an eyewitness to a lot of those films when they originally aired. I have to admit, because I was I was born in 1970 myself, so I I was coming up in the, and I can remember things that I saw going back to when I was about four or five years old. Things like Bad Ronald and oh yeah, uh, I love the, that one. Yeah, that's and the Night Stalker films, and um, but and that brings me to another because uh, Dan Curtis was the producer. <sighs> on those Night Stalker films and directed the second one. But, of course, there's Trilogy of Terror, which has a doll, the yep. famous uh, Zuni fetish doll that chases Karen Black around her apartment. And I uh, was wondering if that had any sort of basis for the inspiration for Chucky. I mean, your uh, child's play is obviously a totally different thing, but I was just wondering if that was something that you had seen and appreciated. or Absolutely, and it was obviously a huge influence on me. Yes, that that TV movie had a huge impact on me, especially that segment. Um, Amelia, I guess it was called. That's correct, yes. And um, also Magic, the Anthony Hopkins movie from 79, and the Mm -hmm. the William Goldman novel as well. Both of those made a big impression on me. And... um, when I wrote the first, uh, the, my script, the first draft of that script, what I was initially, what I wanted to do, what I was turning over in my mind was I wanted to write a dark satire about how marketing affects kids because my mm-hmm. dad worked in advertising and marketing, so it was a world I was very exposed to and I knew how cynical it was. So I, I knew that it, it, it seemed like fertile fertile area for a horror story, and this was in the mid-80s when Cabbage Patch dolls were really popular, when people were, it was just this huge phenomenon, and people were lining up around the block to buy them, and there were little mini riots reported and stuff like that. So that combined with my, you know, interest in the subgenre of of living dolls or killer dolls, uh, sort of combined and what came out of that was ultimately child's play. I think another big influence for me was Gremlins because Gremlins had taken animatronic puppetry to a new level where they were just, they had just reached a level of sophistication 
where in my mind I thought, oh, now you can really make the doll a full-fledged character. Because I, I feel like in, in like Trilogy of Terror, the doll was a little more rudimentary and it, you know, it just sort of had to look scary and it didn't have to deliver reams of dialogue and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but obviously we knew at that point in the mid-80s that the puppeteers and the animatronic geniuses behind all that just made it possible for any emotion, that the puppet can handle any emotion that that we can write. And um, I was very aware of that and sort of thinking, some someone else is going to think of this. <laughs> it's it's going to occur to someone else, so I better write this fast. Yeah, and that that generally is is a that leads to good work usually when you're afraid that you want to beat somebody else to the punch yeah. with an idea. I've heard yeah. that from a lot of writers that that when you're working against that sort of factor involved that that does. But yeah, and I was wondering how uh how John Lafia came on board. I know that he got some of the screenplay co-screenwriting credit, I believe on that, and I was wondering how that all uh, came to be and how his involvement was on that? Well, on the first movie, I was still in college at mm-hmm. UCLA when I when I sold that script. And the producer, David Kirshner, um, you know, I'm sure that they just didn't really regard me as quite yet a seasoned enough writer uh, to to take it on uh, or take it to the finish line or whatever. I mean, I would, uh, you know, I might say, hey, I beg to differ, but I guess that was their thinking. And, you know, many movies, in fact, most movies in Hollywood go through a development process where uh, new writers are brought on board. It's, it's very frustrating if you're the creator of something. Um, and, but in any case, you know, you could, of course, ask all the other people involved, and they would say, oh, this was necessary. And I, and I definitely think that, you know, John LaFia and Tom Holland definitely brought improvements uh, to the story and brought a lot to what ultimately became Child's Play. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so the, the chronology of it is that the, the first person that was put on it was Tom Holland. And David and I met, David actually invited me to that meeting, which I think was really more of a courtesy thing, but I still appreciated it because I, sure. you know, I was a Tom Holland fan based on Fright Night and Psycho 2 and Cloak and Dagger. So that was very exciting to me, even though it was frustrating that someone else was going to be making the changes to the script that the studio you know, deemed necessary, he was going to be doing it. But I thought, okay, well, this is, you know, how it works. And I was, you know, I was okay with it. And then um, Tom left the project for a while, and that's when David brought in John Lafia, and he did a draft. And then all, and there were a couple of other directors attached to it throughout, like, a two-year process, a two-year development process. Because, like, I sold it in like 85, late Mm -hmm. 85-ish, something like that. And it was sort of greenlit and going in mid-87. So it took about two years. And as as projects go in Hollywood, that's pretty damn fast, actually. And let's see, at one point, Joseph Rubin was attached, you know, the director of The Stepfather, among other movies. At one point, this team named Rocky Morton and Annabelle Jankel. Are you familiar with them from the 80s? They were, I think they were the creators of Max Headroom. They were either the creators of Max Headroom and or the directors of Max Headroom. That was their big calling card at the time. So they were attached to it at some point and came and went. And then it all came back to Tom again. And I don't know exactly the details of how or why that happened. Um, And then when they were shooting the film, it was during uh, the 1988 Writers Guild strike. Mm-hmm. So I, could, I couldn't be on the set. Um, but I caught up with it in post-production after there was a, an initial cut. Tom Holland had directed an initial cut, and David Kirshner very graciously and nicely invited me just to sort of see where it was at and to give my opinion. I think he felt that not only he felt like it was the right thing to do because he's a good guy, but I think he also felt like, oh, it could be useful. You know, the guy who started it all, he might have some ideas that 
others won't or whatever. So I really appreciated that gesture. And I think that's really where David and I bonded was in the post-production phase of Child's Play 1. Um, and I had, I, and separately, I'd met John Lafia just as a jobbing screenwriter around L.A. And we crossed paths a couple of times, and he's a very nice guy. And by the time we got to Child's Play 2, David said, okay, Don, you write it, and John will direct it. And um, that was a fantastic experience. I learned mm-hmm. a lot. Yeah, yeah. John's a great guy. I was yeah I was wondering because I knew he uh, he he took over directorial reins for the second one and I guess uh, Tom Holland had moved on to other projects by that time and and um, but I did want to mention one other thing that was released the same year as Child's Play it was another credit that you had under a pseudonym Kit Dubois and that's <laughs> Cellar Dweller directed by John Carl Beckler the makeup artist former makeup artist from New World Pictures right. Roger Corman's. And I was just curious about that one, just not to get well, off track too much. I <laughs> know. Uh, the way that happened was um, so I had written the the script that became Child's Play. It was originally called Batteries Not Included, mm-hmm. and then it was called Blood Buddy. Um, anyway, so I had written that script and optioned it to David Kirshner and MGM. And so it sort of, you know, made the rounds and people read it. And Charles Band had read it and so called me in and asked to have a meeting. Also, at the time, I was living in a house in Hollywood with two other, uh, three other film student types. Uh, and, and two of them had done some work at Empire, which was literally around the corner from where we lived. Uh, their offices at the time for anyone, any of your listeners who happen to be in L.A., their office, offices were on the corner of La Brea and Hawthorne. And I, and I lived on Poinsettia, right across the street from Rock and Roll Ralph's. So I had a little connection to Empire because of my housemates. And as I said, also at the same time, my script had made the rounds and Charlie Band had read it and liked it. So they called me in and they you know, said, we want to make a movie based on this poster (laughs) like they did the poster first and so there was like they brought out a poster for cellar dweller and it had that monster and so they said it has to be about this monster and it all has to take place on one set that this was a set that they had in rome Mm -hmm. and that they had used for some other empire films as well so those were the restrictions and i jumped at the chance i said yes i would love to do this and rolled up my sleeves and tried to make the best, write the best such script one could under those circumstances. Um, it was originally a lot more elaborate and ambitious than what they could possibly do on the schedule and budget. I mean, the budget, I, I don't remember exactly what it was, under a million certainly, and I think it was shot in 12 days or something like that. Um, and Kit Dubois was... <laughs> just a persona I was hiding behind because I was not confident that that was a movie that would serve my, you know, burgeoning career at that point. <laughs> um, Kit Dubois is a play on words. When I was a little kid, my sister and I played this game where my secret identity was Catboy, so Boy, mm-hmm. ha That was about the level of my humor at the age of 21 or 22. <laughs> um, but I'm still, but I, it's funny, as time goes on, I meet more and more people who say, hey, I'm a Cellar Dweller fan. And I go, really? What? That's cool. I mean, I actually think that John Beekler did a really good job um, under the circumstances. The monster in that movie is quite cool, I think. Mm-hmm. It has some cool people in it, too. I mean, I never um, met any of them. I wasn't involved in filming that movie, but, you know, Yvonne DiCarlo was in it. <laughs> I, was like, I That's know. Cool. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. And, and Vince Edwards, Mr. Ben Casey. Vince Edwards, yeah. Pamela uh, Bellwood. Yes. And Jeffrey um, Combs, I think, from um, yeah, he the was reanimator. The, the guy at the beginning. Um, yeah. Yeah, so it it was cool. Um, I was, you know, I was happy to, to have been involved in it. And I'm I'm happy that some people like it. That's very cool. 
Well, her, there are. I think there's a following for just about every horror film made, probably from somebody, because certain people seem to gravitate towards certain horror films, and and, by, and you know, it's it seems like every horror film from the 80s, I should say, seems to have some sort of a cult uh, following, even yeah. if it's the smallish. Right. So, uh, or the majority of them, anyway. Maybe not everyone. It's a blanket statement, but anyway. But um, so, Child's Play two. Um, you said that was a generally good experience for you, and oh uh, yeah, and it was great. It was really great. It, like I said, they, David and John were were very gracious to allow me to sort of use that experience as a gigantic film school. You know, I, where it was really the first film because I didn't have this experience on the first film because of the Writers Guild strike, where I was able to sit in on John Lafia's meetings when he met with production designers and cinematographers, and when he was doing casting. Occasionally, he would ask my opinion, um, but most of the time, I was just sort of sucking it all up, um, and it was huge, great learning experience, particularly with regard to how to deal with the puppets. I think, I think, I think of all of the films, I think that the combination of John's direction, Kevin Yeager's puppetry, and, and I guess the lighting, Stefan Shopsky was the DP on that movie who went from that movie to Edward Scissorhands and then Ed Wood and Batman Returns. Sure. I think that Chucky looks the best, in my opinion, in Child's Play 2, and I know that a lot of fans share that opinion, and I think a lot of that is due to John Lafia. I think he he really was very smart about how to shoot the puppet and how to choreograph a dance between the camera and the puppet to help convey the sense of life and menace. Um Sometimes I sort of like I look back on that and I envy the amount of time and money he had because on the ones I've done I haven't had as much time and money. But um, John John's a really talented guy and he's like very uh, visually oriented and I mm-hmm. learned a lot from learned a lot from him. Yeah, well, it does sound like you had a great experience with that one and there's a lot of um, a lot of great actors that I'm a fan of in smaller smaller parts and supporting parts. I Yep. Um Jenny Agutter, of course, Garrett Graham. Yep. And um as you said, Peter Haskell, you mentioned that earlier and, and even Beth, John Landis. Beth, Beth Grant <laughs> and Grace Zabriskie. Right. Christine Elise. Yeah, it was and I you know, I know them all to varying degrees, except for Grace Zabriskie. I haven't talked to her in, in a very long time. But, um, yeah, there were a lot of great people on that show. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, and then uh, Child's, Play, Child's Play 3 came out the following year and didn't do quite as quite the business that the other two had done, and so the franchise was was on hiatus, shall we say, for a couple of years. <laughs> yeah, or, about, I guess, or dormant or whatever. You know, it was also yeah. a strange time in horror, you know, sort yeah. of the, the first half of the 90s, I think it was just sort of pregnant waiting for the next big thing to come. And that next big thing, of course, was Scream in yeah. 96. But from, you know, like the early 90s up until then, it was it's just a little bit of a, not a not a wasteland at all. There's There was a lot of interesting work done. But, there, but I think when we think of seminal, horror movies there are fewer from that particular five or six year period there was just there was just something about the genre that was it was just trying to find its new face or something and i think kevin williamson helped that happen with scream where suddenly you know horror could be self-referential and kind of funny and i i particularly i was very happy about the funny because chucky was already you know, a funny character. And with Bride of Chucky, we took that as license to sort of change the genre. It was an opportunity to do something very different. I think that David Kirshner and I felt with Child's Play 3, part of the problem 
was that we were starting to repeat ourselves. It was just kind of the same movie again. Chucky wants to transfer his soul into this kid, and he's going to kill some people along the way, and that was just like getting stale, and so we just had to find a way to reinvent it. And that's where Tiffany came from. Yeah, and that was was a wonderful experience. That was a movie where almost everything went right, I think. And in a lot of ways, it's my favorite of all of them. That that and Curse, because they both were sort of marked reinventions of the genre that were successful. Mm -hmm. And so I think I, I look at those movies with particular fondness. I also yep. met Jennifer Tilly and Fiona Dorif on those movies, and they're you know two of my best friends, and so I have sentimental reasons for liking them as well. Oh yeah, and you have Catherine Heigl there in a very early Catherine Heigl, yes. Pre Grey's she's really, Anatomy, she's really good in the movie too. Yeah, and uh, and the late Alexis Arquette turns up there. Uh, yeah, she was amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah, I remember when we. I think it was, I I can't remember I think it was Corey Sienega who was our exec, one of the one of I was going to say one of the executive producers on the show it was my fellow mm-hmm. executive producer who was the other one me that's right um, <laughs> but I think it was Corey's idea Alexis was I think um, what was that Adam Sandler movie with uh, with Drew Barrymore the Wedding Singer and Alexis yes. Alexis was in that I was familiar with Alexis from a couple of horror movies and also just from being gay in LA. No, <laughs> frankly, sure. certainly my path had, had, had crossed Alexis's, uh, in that way over the years. And then, um, when she did bride of Chucky, I thought like, Oh my God, she's perfect. Mm-hmm. Uh, and was so talented and awesome. And really it's very sad that, um, we lost her so early. I know that was that was such a sad. And another one that passed not long after that was John Ritter, of course, just a couple of years right. later, who's also right. in there as the chief. So, oh yeah, and he was awesome too. And interestingly, a huge horror fan. Wow, didn't know. That. I wouldn't necessarily have expected, but he, you know, he had yeah. done it by that time. But he was very savvy about the genre and had mm-hmm. a, you know, and was very enthusiastic about making the movie, which was great because, frankly, I have worked with a few actors over the years whose whose attitude was much more that they were slumming, <laughs> you know, uh, which is just super annoying. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, and John was not like that at all. John was a genuine horror fan. He really liked the project. He liked the character. He loved working with Ronnie Yu, the director, and, mm-hmm. and Peter Pow, our DP, who just made that movie so beautiful. I mean, we'd come to the set every day on that movie and just sort of marvel at how it all looked. And I think we all had the sense that it could turn out to be something special. And... Yeah, John was definitely a part of that. It was fun to see him in a villainous role as well because I don't think he had really been known to do that so much at that point. No, he was just coming off of his um, his stint in Sling Blade, which kind of rejuvenated his big screen career there. Yes, and he was amazing in that. Yes, he is. He's terrific. And that was... And those he had- he was friends with David Kirshner because they had done a, a TV movie together a few years before Bride about the life of L. Frank Baum, the writer of the Oz books. That's and right. I remember John that. played yes. Frank Baum. So David was friends with John, and when we did Child's Play 3, there was talk of having John in the movie, and I actually wrote a little character and scene specifically for him, mm-hmm. which we ended up cutting. And I don't remember exactly why. I don't remember. I, I think we probably cut it just for, you know, story's sake. But there was a scene at the beginning of that script that took place at the factory. I think what's left of it is just the title sequence where we see this abandoned factory during the titles or just before yeah. the title start. Remember. But there was this whole scene where a couple of kids break into the now-abandoned, spooky-looking doll factory. And 
while they're in the midst of this spooky uh, setting, they sort of catch the audience up about the mythology that, you know, we need to establish in order to bring everyone up to speed in case they haven't seen Child's Play 1 and Child's Play 2. Sure, yeah. And then anyway, anyway there was, so there was this character of a security guard there that John was going to play. And then, anyway, we had to cut it, and we, but we came back to him a few years later in a much more interesting role as Catherine Heigl's dad, who was one of the greatest deaths ever. <laughs> <laughs> yes, very good. But I do say so good. myself. <laughs> or nod to Clive Barker. Well, I, I love the humor in Bride of Chucky. I know you took it up uh, another notch. And they were always had their humorous moments. But I remember laughing so hard at that discussion when they're trying to figure out how they're actually going to drive a car. And I'm just right. laughing out loud, <laughs> that dialogue. And that's just, it was great. And... So I knew that uh, that this was a this was a good way to go with it. Uh, if you were going to follow up number three, you just like you said, it was it was a good good direction and good choices by all of you. And, and of course, Ronnie, you went on to do the Freddy versus Jason later, and then uh, and then you took over directing actually after that. <laughs> that sounds almost hostile. Like there was a hostile. <laughs> Where it's like you guys can't get rid of me now. <laughs> You're, you have to let me direct, and it was kind of like that in a way. <laughs> um, no, I had um, directed some second unit on Bride of Chucky, and I was very involved in post production on that movie. M- much I mean, just as a, an executive producer, but but more than writers generally are involved in movies that they write, although I'm sure every writer would love to be able to participate to that degree that I was invited to on Bride of Chucky. Um, But anyway, I think because of my efforts on that movie, and it turned out well and it was a success, they finally decided to give me the keys to the car. Yeah. And it took another 15 years before there was another installment as far as a feature film, which uh, was a long gap. And and then we saw Curse of Chucky in 2013, which, uh, you know, like I said, that, uh, of course, Brad Dourif returned, but most of the cast was new at that point. They they weren't returning cast, not a lot of returning cast members from previous installments. In Curse? Oh, well, you skipped skipped over over Seed of Chucky. Because Seed That's of Chucky right. was, was the first one I directed, and that was a theatrical release, and that came out in 2004. Yeah, that's well, that's the one I was referring to when I said you went on to direct. But yeah, I should have spent oh, my I time on it. Yeah. Uh, oh, I see. You're just sort of like graciously like going past that one. <laughs> no, it's good. It's good. It, it's a great continuation of Bride of Chucky. I I, I didn't mean it that way uh, at all. It's um, no, I'm, I'm totally kidding. Um, but so, yeah, actually, and then after that, uh, it was Curse with a brand new cast. Yes. Right. Yeah. I was. Well, there are some some cast members in Seed. We should. I'm glad you brought that up because we should take a moment to uh, mention some of the cast members here and and how you uh, managed to get John Waters in there. <laughs> how that came about. It's an interesting story, actually. Um, ju- this this actor named Justin Whalen, who had played. 16-year-old Andy Barkley in Child's Play 3. Mm-hmm. He, after that, a couple years after Child's Play 3, he did the movie Serial Mom. He was in that. So he worked with John, and it was, it was, that was the first time I found out that John Waters was a Chucky fan, because Justin Whalen told me, and he told me that John Waters had a Chucky doll at his house in a bathroom or something. So knowing that John Waters was a Chucky fan, I, you know, I thought, oh, I should write something for him. I bet, you know, would have a decent shot of getting him. And um, Tony Gardner, who, you know, did the puppets on Seed of Chucky, he had worked with John and put me in touch with John. And the first time I spoke with him on the phone, John called me from a prison where he was visiting 
an inmate friend of his, <laughs> which I just thought was kind of perfect. Anyway, by that point, he had read the script, and he was all in, and he was very enthusiastic. Again, not unlike John um, Ritter. He, you know, very much a horror fan and very enthusiastic and very excited. It was, a, it was just such a pleasure to work with him. But I remember, so I was I was in London at that point, prepping the movie, and and as my phone call with John Waters is ending, he says, "Okay, I'll see you um, in a couple of months in Budapest." And I said, "Oh no, not Budapest, Bucharest." And he goes, <laughs> "Where's?" And he goes, "Where's that?" And thinking he's going to be going to Hungary, and I said, "Romania." And he goes, "I'll call you back." <laughs> <laughs> so he, there was like a slight hiccup there. He's like, what am I getting myself in for? Um, but happily, it all worked out. Yeah, yeah, he's he's good in it. And another thing I wanted to mention was the score by Pino Donazio, who, you know, obviously the Palma connection there. And yeah. I think that was a real coup for you to be able to get Donazio to contribute a score. To one of, yeah, it was one of the most thrilling experiences of my life. Totally. I was was a huge fan of his mm-hmm. from the De Palma films and from, you know, he'd done a couple of scores for Joe Dante as sure, well. Sure, yeah. And, you know, Don't Look Now. You know, he's very, very celebrated composer. And I just sort of, like, thought, why not? I'm going to take a swing at this and see what happens. And it worked out. And and he's the coolest guy. He is so nice, um, as well as, you know, being massively talented. And, I mean, some of my favorite memories on that movie was when we were in post, and I I, I was going to say, I had to go to Venice. I had to go to Venice to spot the film with Pino Donaggio. (laughs) So it's like I go to Venice, and I'm in a boat, a taxi, you know, coming up the Grand Canal where, you know, Pino's studio is right on the Grand Canal and where Uh I'm going to be staying. and, And, you know, just working with him and his associate Paolo Stefan who also a great guy and he's the one who crucially speaks English because Pino does not speak a word of English right yeah but we, I've were, heard able that. To, but we were able to communicate because of his because like I like know his music by heart as it sounds like you may also I <laughs> do similar geek so uh, you know yeah. I, I literally had the experience of one night going to dinner with Pino in Venice and then walking home along the canals whistling the theme from Don't Look Now. And I'm oh. thinking, Oh my god, this is great. Doesn't get better than this. I'm and I kidding. loved and I loved his score for that movie. And I do too. we recorded with the London Symphony Orchestra. I mean, it was insane. And that was a first for Pino as well. He'd never worked with the London Symphony Orchestra before. And just to have such an August, you know, orchestra do the score was really thrilling. Yeah, that's pretty pretty incredible. I, I would have been geeking out. I know that for a fact, being the Donazio fan that I am. And I'm so glad that he scored the most recent De Palma film, too. They continued to work together. If, right, if Domino. It, yeah, right, I hope yeah. it comes out. God, because you know it's been as I'm obviously as a De Palma fan, you know. I mean, it's it has some kind of legal issues, it and it's just been sitting sitting there for a couple of years or a year or something. Yeah, and I know and that the release is kind of in doubt. I know that's a shame. I can't believe that they can't get those those rights un, uh, unentangled and and get it out there because we're. De Palma fans are salivating. I was hoping that after the after the De Palma documentary from a couple of years ago, and that was getting such rave reviews, I thought, oh, he's going to get some financing now. We're going to get to see some new De Palma films, and that one came out. You know, that one was done, and I thought, oh, this is the first of hopefully a, a new phase of his career, and it just hasn't happened. Uh, you know, he, he just hasn't had much luck with things of that nature, and it just, uh, it's terrible, terrible. Are you familiar with the website De Palma a la Mod? I read it all the time. It's yeah, great. It's so great. <laughs> so then you know, it's like I. It sounds like you had the same experience. I sort of tracked the, you know, what was going on with Domino. I did too. Via that site, and even reading that stuff, you could tell that that was a troubled production. You know, because yes. remember there was I don't I don't remember the locations, but there were they were in one location and like at the last minute. 
it fell through and they had to regroup and go mm -hmm. to another country. And so you could tell it was having problems and they were yes. having to do some things on the fly. It, it sounded a little alarming. So um, I'm sure that there's a good story there that we'll hear someday, I hope. But yeah, I hope some, I, ho I hope we see it. I hope it sees the light of day. But does, isn't he doing something? There was something announced recently beyond the Weinstein movie thing that he was going to do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he, um, he's claiming but, that he's but, writing a script. But even after that, there's some project that he supposedly has become attached to now that looks like if if anything goes first, it's going to be whatever this project is. Anyway, go to you know, DePalmaAlamont.com. Yes. You can read all about it. Let's plug them. <laughs> Absolutely. They're great. And we have had DePalma on our show. He's been on. Um, oh, yeah? I didn't know that. How was yeah, that? He How has, awesome. Yeah, it was kind of a, a funny story how it happened. We... Um, our show's been around 11 years, and so when we first started, we just wanted to, to do a tribute to De Palma, and we did it in a uh, spectacular fashion. What we did was we, for five nights in a row, we released a new episode of our show where we covered one film out of his catalog, out of his off, you know, uh, that he had directed, and we got as many participants from each film as we could get together to. And we conducted interviews with them, and these shows were two and a half, three hours long, each one of them. And we had William Finley on, we had Nancy Allen, I I can't even tell you, Paul Hirsch was there. Um, wow. We just had a lot of people. And so anyway, apparently De Palma was listening to our show, and so when it came time for him to promote Redacted, he specifically requested to come on, so he came on. Oh, how on awesome. And, and, oh, I'm going to uh, have to look that up. I, I was completely unaware of that. Oh, I would love yeah. To, I would love to listen to those. But anyway, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but we will talk quickly about Curse of Chucky and Cult of Chucky, and okay. and those are uh, are keeping in, in line with the others as well, enjoyable, both on their own terms. You know, lots of, lots of good jokes there, and mixing up the humor and the horror. And, uh, well, those are actually Curse and Cult have the best um, reviews of all of them in the franchise. I perhaps annoyingly hasten to point out, <laughs> as we're you know as we're about to take the franchise into a new medium with television, mm -hmm. um, I you know I'm always hot for people to understand that. Hey, the last two movies they they did really well, even though they weren't released theatrically, they were released on Netflix and did extremely well. Yeah, got great reviews and, and they, they were fun to do. It was fun, you know. We with Curse, I wanted to, you know, bring it back to its horror roots because we had done two comedies in a row with Bride and yeah. Seed, so we wanted to reinvent it again, and mm -hmm. and that worked out pretty well. And I had a great experience directing that, and loved working with Fiona, and you know, then we did Cult, and that went well as well. Thank you. 